singing this morning. You can be seated. We're going to take our Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter number 4. I got to catch my breath after that one. 1 Peter chapter number 4. And we're going to continue on in our series through 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to look down this morning in verse number 7. 1 Peter chapter number 4 in verse number 7. It says, But the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. And all people said, Amen. Father, bless the next few minutes that we have as we look at this passage today. I pray that you would guide us and help us. We love you. We need you. Guide us today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The Bible tells us here, and if you remember last week, we looked at the first few verses of this chapter. And as we deal with sin and how to live the life that, we, that the Lord has for us, there's some things that we got to do. We got to arm ourselves with the mind that Christ had. And then we need to live for the Lord. We need to live in the Spirit and not in the flesh. That's what we looked at last week. Today, as we continue on, we see in verse number 7, the text tells us here, but the end of all things is at hand. Now, I know this was written about 2,000 years ago, but I want you to understand, when Jesus went back to heaven, that means the end is getting closer since that happened. And we are, it is at hand. Did you know that in 1947, there was a group of scientists that started a doomsday countdown for when the end of the world is going to take place? You can go online and you can look at this. It's called the Doomsday Clock. Started in 1947. And the thing is, when it gets to midnight, the world's going to end, is what they say. And there's a lot to all of that. It's amazing. So we'll say when I was born, 1985, we were two minutes away from the world ending. It was 11.58 on the Doomsday Clock. And then things slowed it down a little bit here or there. They put, all, they put political stuff in there. They go all over the place. I'll put it this way. If you read this last year, they say we are 100 seconds away from the world ending. And what has led to this, it really started jumping up once Donald Trump became president. Because that really ruined everything, according to these scientists and things. And then Joe Biden's new agenda and this green stuff is trying to slow it down, but it hasn't quite done what they thought it was going to do. So we're 100 seconds away from imminent destruction. Now, they don't have it too far off. The world is going to end. The end is coming. And we could look at this in two different lights. So we could look at it in this way. Well, first of all, we don't know when our expiration date is, right? Each of us in this room. I was, my dad and I were teasing the other day. And he's a, he just turned 81. And he did something, and he's like, the brain just doesn't work like it used to work. And he's like, you'll see when you're my age. And I said, there's no guarantee I'm going to be your age. 
you're guaranteed to be 81. I'm 37, only the Lord knows. And here, pastoring takes years off your life, and the amount of bacon you eat in your life takes years off your life. And I've taken some time off my life just with those two right there, so who knows? We're not guaranteed how long we're going to be here. We also look today, this world is only getting worse and worse. It is not getting any better before your eyes. And if you think it's getting better, you are fooling yourself. It is not, and it will not get better, as the Bible tells us. What I want you to understand is, we are in the last days. There is no doubt about it. Say, so when did the last days start? When Jesus went back to heaven, the last days began. Because that marked the th that's all that was needed for everything else. The end is near. Say, so how near is it? It could happen, and the trump of God could sound before this service is over. And if it is, even so, Lord Jesus, come. It could be a hundred years from now. It could be who knows when it's going to I don't see it lasting another hundred years. I really don't. But at the end of the day, I don't decide when all these things happen. But as we look here, and as we see this passage of Scripture, the Bible tells us the end of all things is at hand. The word end refers to the completion or the conclusion to a goal that's been achieved. And so I want you to understand, and we look at our world today, and it might seem like Satan is running everything and he's in charge today. And really, he thinks he is in charge of this world. He really does. And, he, and you look at what's going on in this world, it looks like he is. But may I just remind you this morning that God is in control of all things. He is sovereign. He's all-powerful this morning. And he, he's working at all. He has a plan with everything. Do you realize that? And man cannot mess up the plan of God. God's plan will come through. God knows what he's doing. And though man might try to mess up God's plan, man will never mess up God's plan. And so as we look here and we see this passage, and I think about, the Bible tells us in Psalm 47, it says, the God reigneth over the heathen, and God sitteth upon the throne of his holiness. Nothing takes God by surprise, and God's in control of all things. No matter what anyone says or what anyone thinks, God is all-powerful. No leader, no one ever in this world's ever been that way, and Satan isn't like the Lord. The end is at hand, the Bible says. That phrase, at hand, means to approach or to draw near. It gives you that imminency, meaning that Jesus could return at any moment. Wouldn't it change our lives if we lived with that urgency? And if we lived with that expectation that Jesus could come back at any moment? The thing is, we all as Christians say we believe that he's coming back. But our actions don't reflect that fact very well. Imagine what you did yesterday, some of the things you did. Just think about some of the things you did yesterday. Hopefully you did good things yesterday. But I'm sure at some point you didn't do the greatest of things. Maybe you went somewhere you shouldn't have gone. Maybe you sh thought something you shouldn't have thought. And that was just me. And so I don't know about you. But what I want you to understand is, if we would live thinking Jesus could return at any moment, it might help us with our witness to other people. Hey, since Jesus is returning, I need to share the gospel with that person before it's too late. Hey, I need to share that with this person. What if we could live our lives in a way to where we expected and, and we were focusing on the fact that he's returning? Everything is set for the Lord's return. 
the next prophetic event to take place is going to be the rapture of the church. And it's going to come, and you can look around today, and, you know, there's, who knows how it's going to happen. They disappeared, aliens took them. They didn't do this, or they did that. Something happened here, and they all just disappeared. And so we got to protect ourselves. We're going to mark our, this is your mark to help you get where you need to be. We're going to watch out for one another. And you can't buy things if you don't have this mark. You can see how it all will play out. And in the past two years, you can see a lot better how it's all going to play out by the craziness of what's gone on in our world in the past two years. So as we look at this today, and we know that the return of Christ is at hand, and because the end of all things is at hand, first of all, I think this had to be an encouragement to these people. Think of the persecution that they were facing, and to have that hope in there, Jesus is coming again. That was great hope for them. In our world today, and the craziness of life, let that be a comfort today that Jesus is coming again. His return is imminent. He is coming soon. And as we look at this, and we think on this, look what the Bible says. Be therefore sober. It means to pause and ponder what's coming next. The study, and as we study the end times, should not only satisfy our curiosity, but also should help us live more like Christ till he comes. The Bible tells us in 1 John 2, Verse number 28, and now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Quite a verse right there. Do you want to be ashamed when he comes? I just see it sitting at the bar, pulling up that beer. Oh, Jesus, hell, um, um, yeah, that's not the way you want to go out, right? Yelling at your spouse or at your children, you good for, oh, Jesus, hello. Not really the way, you don't want to be, you don't want it to be that way. The Bible says, abide in him, draw near to him, that when he shall appear, and he's going to, we may have confidence and not be ashamed. You need to be ready to go. Your bag's packed, ready to go. I've used the illustration often. You know, our firstborn, William, we had, we had everything planned out pretty well for William. You know, it's the first one, and so way ahead of time, you know, Caroline's eating extra special and all these things, was, you know, all that. We had the bag packed at the door from seven months on, and it's just sitting there, ready to go. And uh, we end up going to the hospital like three different times, thinking this was the time, and it wasn't the time. And I'd drive back and forth to Loma Linda and all that good stuff. And, uh, and then by the last time I could tell by her face it was time, I could tell what the other, well, looking back on it now, I know those first two times she wasn't ready, but there's a certain face that she would get when, yeah, she's ready. And so, but Alyssa was completely different. We went on a little anniversary trip. She was supposed to be born around our anniversary, so we went early on this little trip. Probably shouldn't have rode the bicycle like we did and things in the heat and stuff like that. Thought she was a little dehydrated after church on Wednesday night. We went to the hospital just to get her checked to make sure everything was okay. And it wasn't dehydration. It was those, you know, it was like, you know, those things you see, the, the earthquakes. Yeah, the, the, well, it was the, it was the, it was the contractions. No, the baby came. Alyssa came within seven hours of that. And we were not ready. And so we're there at the hospital and Caroline's like, did you, we don't have anything, do we? Nope, nothing. I said, I'll go home. You, t- you stay here. You take care of things while I'm gone, and I'll go home and get the bag. 
And no, you stay right here. Okay. And then early morning, I'm like, do you want me to go get the bag? You better hurry back, and you better not take a long time. From Pomona Valley here, it took only three hours. Traffic was really bad that morning, and it didn't take that long. And as soon as I got back in the room, Alyssa literally was born within the next 30 minutes. She, like, waited just for me. I told her, you don't have to wait. It was fine. Just take care of it. No problem. No problem. Go back to the days to where the man waited in the waiting room. That would have been all right there. But um, we were not prepared. Didn't have any. And, you know, I don't even remember. I, have, I need to go back and look at pictures. You know, for William, she had this cute first outfit for him picked out and everything. I just went in the room, grabbed something, threw it in the bag, and left. I don't even know what she wore coming home. And, you know, it's our little girl. We weren't ready. Are you ready for the Lord's return? Are you living your life? Are you going to be able to have confidence in his return? Are you going to be ashamed when he comes? With that in mind, we look at the end being near. The Bible here under inspiration, Peter gives us some things to do in light of living in the end times. Number one, as we dive into our notes, we see the Bible says, or we see here, number one in our notes, Pray seriously and with purpose. Bible says there in verse number 7, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. The first thing we need to do living in the end times is found there in the last part of that verse. To be sober and watch means to be sober-minded and to exercise self-control so that our passions don't carry us away. It's the opposite of living out our lust, like verse 4 and 5 tell us in this passage. And in this world, you've got to understand something. What we need to do is we need to be focused on the Lord. We need to be serious, and we need to pray. You say, well, why is that? Because when we look at these things, we think about what... It says to be... Look at those verses there. It says to be sober and watchful unto prayer. It means we need to be looking at what's going on in our world today. And not looking and getting scared or worried about it, but praying about it. God's people should not be running around scared with what's going on in our world today. We need to be sober, we need to be watching, and we need to take it to God in prayer. But what we do is we worry about it. We go to Facebook and post our complaints about government and those things, and you're never going to be happy with government, and it's never going to get any better, no matter who's in office, if we're going to be honest here today. What we should be doing is we need to be watching what's going on, and we need to be sober-minded. We need to have some control over ourselves and keep our focus and pray to God. Let me ask you this morning, when's the last time you prayed for America? Say, well, America's a mess. Our country's a mess. Yes, it is. But when's the last time you seriously prayed for our country? When's the last time you begged God for forgiveness for all the murder that goes on in this country day in and day out? Be it through whatever the case may be, through abortion, through shootings in different places. When's the last time you begged God for forgiveness for your country? So that's not my job. I think Daniel did it. And he wasn't one of the ones that did what they did. I think Nehemiah kind of did it as well. They were serious, and there was purpose behind their prayers. Hey, when's the last time you prayed for this state of California? It's a messed up state. I don't know if you realize that. And I think it goes all the way back to when California was founded. 
Well, you know, we think about America was founded for religious liberty, right? What was, Ameri what was California founded for? Gold. Greed. There's a big difference, right? And you wonder why we see, they, but I want you to understand something this morning. When's the last time you prayed that God would heal this state? When's the last time you prayed that our governor would get saved? Say, oh, I think he's saved. Okay, whatever. That's fine. You can think whatever you want to think there. When's the last time you prayed seriously for these things? When's the last time you prayed for God's people to have fervency in what they do? We don't pray seriously about anything. Oh, Lord, bless my neighbor. Bless this person that's sick. Bless this. And that's our prayer. Really? As we live in the end days, and as we get closer to the end, and we are closer, you are closer right now to the end than what you were when this service started. The Bible tells us here that we need to be sober and watch unto prayer. Since there's a lot going on in our world today, we need to be sober-minded, and we need to be praying with purpose. Most Christians today don't pray with any purpose. What's your purpose in prayer? What do you pray for? I'll ask you this. Do you have a prayer list? People don't like me saying it, but I'm going to say it anyways. You don't have a prayer list? I doubt you have a prayer life. And I'll tell you this. If you're in this room and you don't have a prayer list, but you say you have a prayer life, come tell me in my office, and I will never say that statement again. You don't have a prayer list. You don't have a prayer life. You might pray every once in a while, but that's about it. God's people should be known for prayer. God's house should be known for prayer. I don't know if you've realized it, but we have a prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. So why do we have a prayer meeting? Because prayer needs to be important. And to the five people that come, I think it is important. Prayer needs to be a bigger deal to us in our lives. We need to take it seriously and have purpose behind our prayers. Isn't that what we read right here? As the end draws near, we need to be serious and focused on our prayers. Don't just pray in general. Be specific. Have purpose in your prayer. Number two, we need to love fervently. Look at what the Bible says. Look at verse number eight. First Peter chapter four, verse number eight. It says, and above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. As we look here, the word charity, it means agape. It's love. It's that unconditional love. And what we need to do is as we live on the edge of eternity, we need to focus on prayer. But above all things, this is what it says right here. Do you see above all? We need to love fervently, have charity for one another. And do you know already, if you were to take count, in the book of 1 Peter, we're only on chapter number 4. This is the fifth time that Peter talks about the importance of love. Did you realize that? Fifth time. Maybe you didn't realize that, but it's there. And as we look at this, this is not some emotional type of love or a friendly type of love. This is a love that covers a multitude of things, right? A love that is an unconditional love. And the Bible tells us here that this is to be a fervent love. That word fervent, it has the idea behind it of a horse whose legs are fully extended while galloping, or an athlete straining and stretching at the finish line in order to win the race. It means that our love must be operating at full capacity. It's an intense kind of love. 
only one other time in the Bible. Now, this is the thing. We don't, we don't know Greek and Hebrew and all that, and some of us fiddle around with it a little bit, but we really don't know it very well. So sometimes you'll see like a word fervently, and you'll think, well, how many times is it used in the Bible? Well, in all reality, you've got to look at the Greek word to see how many times it's used. So this word fervently is only used one other time in the New Testament. And it's used in Acts chapter number 12 and verse number 5. It's the phrase there, without ceasing, that is the same phrase. That same there means the same as fervent. So it says, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing for him unto God, for him. Their fervent prayer. They didn't stop. They kept at it. Do you see that right there? And so the Bible says as we live in the end days, and as we get closer to that time, we need to focus on our prayers and have purpose behind our prayers. But then above that, we need to love one another fervently and not let it stop. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse number 7, talking about charity. Charity beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and it endures all things. That phrase there, beareth all things, the word beareth is derived from like a roof that covered a building and has the idea of protection. And so as we look at them, we think about that, look at what verse number 8 says, or ver yeah, the rest of verse number 8. It says, for charity, for love shall cover the multitude of sins. Do you see that there? To cover means to cause something not to be known. Instead of exposing someone's faults to everyone, love says, no, I'm not going to do that. That's what love says. Oh, do you know what so-and-so did? Love says, no, I'm not going to tell anybody what so-and-so did because I love them. They messed up. They made a mistake. They sinned. We shouldn't use mistake, right? We talked about that last Sunday morning. They messed up. I'm not, I love them, though, and I'm not going to tell everyone. I'm going to protect them in the midst of that. Now, when we look and we think about that, sometimes there are things that need to be, sin has to be dealt with. And you say, oh, well, and I've heard of preachers, I've heard different people, this person does some great sin and they keep it hidden. You can't keep sin hidden. But when someone offends you, you don't have to go tell the world about it. You're to love them enough. And we'll talk more about this here in a minute. When we look at this, Peter's quoting Proverbs is what he's doing. Proverbs 10, verse number 12. Hatred stirreth up strives, but love covereth all sins. Hatred stirs things up while love settles things down. Do you see that right there? When someone wrongs you, what does hatred do? It stirs it up and keeps it going and keeps it going. But love settles it down. Say, Pastor, you don't know what that person, what that fellow church member did to me. And you have a choice to make. You can let it stir up, or you can love them and let it settle down. That's powerful when you look at that. Love refuses to deliberately drag out the problems or sins of others. We think about Noah. Noah was a great man. 
Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah made a big mistake later on in his life. That vineyard. Noah got drunk. What happened when Noah got drunk? He was uncovered in his tent. You can kind of see the difference between hatred and love in the response of his sons. The Bible tells us that what did Ham do? He went in. We don't know what happened there. He was cursed because of it. We don't know. And people jump to conclusions all the time what happened. But where the Bible stays silent doesn't mean you have to speak up and give a doctrine on what you think happened. We don't know what happened. But what we do know is what happened. When he came out, he told his brothers about it. What did his brothers do? Genesis 9.23 tells us, And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backwards, backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. What did Shem and Japheth do here? They covered him. That's what love does. When the Bible tells us here that we are to love fervently, it doesn't mean, and when we think about these things, it doesn't mean that we condone sin, because the Bible says that love has to confront sin. But what, I love how someone worded it like this. Cover whatever offenses you can, but if an offense bothers you to an extent it hinders your relationship, you need to confront it. Someone else said this. They said, when fervent love is found in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even some large ones are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion, every action is liable to misunderstanding. You want to see in a church if a church is full of love or not? See how we get along with everybody. Or see what we assume of everybody else and what they think. They think I'm doing something. That shows there's not love going on. We need to love one another fervently, the Bible says here. As we get closer to the end, as we see these things, we need to, do you realize today a person will wrong you, and they will wrong you. You can either take them hostage, or you can set them free. You can broadcast how they hurt you, or you can bury it. Ray Pritchard, he wrote this, he said, No church can survive very long unless the members decide that love will cover a multitude of sins. I learned something a long time ago. I'm going to give you one of my secrets here. Are you ready for one of my secrets? And I, this isn't the reason why I do it, but I was told a long time ago from a good... Pa so I will look at pastors and I... You know, I'm still a young pastor. I'll take that as long as I can. So I look at those who've been in ministry a long time, and I look at where I want to be someday. There are a lot of men I don't want to be like them someday. And I want to be like Jesus overall, but you get what I'm trying to say. One of the best pieces of, of advice I ever was given was this. Love God's people. Just love them. Love them, love them, love them. Because if you don't, and there's going to come a day where you mess up with them, be it anything you do, whatever the case may be. I'm not talking about sin failures. There are sin failures that disqualify you from ministry, and love shouldn't cover those. 
those need to be dealt with and dealt properly with. But I was taught you love the people of God because there's going to be a day that you hurt them. And when you love them, your love will help cover those things. And I believe that's true. I think that could work in our marriages, in our relationships. We need to love. Man, if we're going to love God's people and not dwell on forgiveness, or, some, or not, um, not, if we're going to love God's people and extend forgiveness to them, there's some things that we got to do. We got to, you know, we got to get to the point where we don't dwell on the incident. Satan wants you to. Oh, so-and-so, they just hurt me. Yes, and you've been hurt before by someone else, and you've hurt someone else as well. We've all been hurt. And if you can, set it to the side and forget it. And then don't store it up to use against them in the future. Not a gunny sack that you pull out when you need to, you know? Don't talk to other people about it. Don't. Now, this is the thing. So, now, I tell people, don't talk to anybody about it. There's been times where stuff's gone on with church people, and they'll come to me and be like, well, Pastor, you said not. If you need help trying to handle it, you can come talk to me, okay? I don't think it's wrong to come talk to me. I think it's wrong to talk to someone who can't help you with the situation. And there might be someone in our church that you look to. I know maybe there's a lady. I know Johnette does the ladies' Bible study. Mona's got her prayer thing. There might be something that goes on where you want to talk to one of them about something. And I would trust both of those ladies. And they're not going to go spread it around the church. But the last thing you want to do is get something spreading about someone. And it's happened in our church before. Do you know what so-and-so did? And then it spreads and spreads. And someone came to me, how can you let so-and-so be in church? I'm like, whoa, where did that come from? That doesn't sound like love to me. That's not love at all. We don't broadcast all that stuff. We love one another fervently. That's what the Bible's called us to do. We need to do these things. And if we're going to grow in the Lord and do what God has for us, we've got to do this. We need, and this is the thing. You don't really have an option. You're supposed to love God's people. I think the Bible makes that clear. And so uh, as we look at this, look at what verse number 9 goes on to say. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. The word hospitality literally means friendly, welcoming, generous to guests, especially to strangers. It has the idea of giving practical help to anyone in need. When you think about the early church in those days, they didn't have the Motel 6 or, you know, the Marriott or the Hilton that they could stay in. God's people helped them along the way. When Paul needed a place to stay, God's people were hospitable with him, right? That's the way it was intended to be. And when we look at these things, a Christian's duty is to have an open door to God's people. Do we have an open door? This is the problem. We come to church and it's okay to be around God's people at church, but that's it. They're not welcome into my world. Why not? Hey, when's the last time you invited someone to church over to your house? Trust in me. There are a few families in our church that do, but there are not very many. And I know some, well, my house is just, just not up for guests, whatever. Then go out to eat somewhere with them. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time you were hospitable 
to God's people. That's what we're supposed to do, right? It says right here. Now, here's the other thing. Then you open up your house and have people over, and, oh, they messed up the carpet. They didn't put their dishes away. Their kids were animals, and that's the pastor's kids. The Bible says that we need to be hospitable and not grumble about it, not complain and murmur about it. It's just like the church. You know, you think about this, open hearts lead to open homes. A forgiving spirit leads to a friendly spirit. As we do these things and we think about these things, I want you to understand something. Is our church, this is a good question here, is our church or your home a ministering place or a museum place? This building, may I just help you? This building is a tool to reach people. That's all that it is. And I get people off, and I know, I know, I look, I, I'm, I see the stains on the carpet there. I see the stains on the carpet. I see them. We're getting them clean in a few weeks again. But we have, next week we're going to have a dinner in here. It happens. So I was talking with a man yesterday, and he said, the church he came from, start coming to our church. He's like, there are no kids at that church. None. You look at today, a lot of churches, you go through our city, and I'm not going to start naming churches today, but there are a lot of churches that there are no children even in those churches. The big ones have, the big ones, Calvary Chapels and the others have children, but you could look at most churches our size or smaller have no kids whatsoever, which tells me there is no future in that place. No children, no future. You need children. And the guy's like, I love the fact that when I come in, there's kids running around. I almost trip over them, but I'm glad they're here. And talked about, you know, on Wednesday nights having the kids in the service too. They enjoy that. And some might look, well, we have the kids up here. They have the snacks. They have everything else. They enjoy being in church on Wednesday nights, and they enjoy having some snacks. Where no oxen are, the crib is clean. If this is meant to be a museum, then let's keep it spotless. But this is a ministry tool. It's going to get dirty. We didn't fix up the building so this could be a shrine for Victory Baptist Church. We fixed it up to bring honor and glory to God, but this is a tool to reach people. And when you take a building and it becomes something more than a tool to reach people, we've got problems. I still remember when I was in Montana, we bought our first brand new car. Man, it was a, it was a darker blue, shiny dark blue. Oh, I love that. I love that color. A darker blue. Oh, was, I, I love that car. That was, one, that was probably my favorite car I've had up to this point. The only other thing I'd like, I'd love to someday to get an old Mustang maybe like a 66, 67, somewhere in there, and fix it up and paint it that dark blue, man, that would be fun right there. And I could do it. I could handle those old motors. The stuff today, I can't handle that stuff as much. But anyways, this car, it was so nice. Anyways, I love the paint job. And I just remember the first year we had it. We lived in Montana. So, you know, when it snowed, what they would do is they threw rocks on the ground. And so, literally, if your car didn't have 
chips in the paint from the rocks on the road or chips on the windshield from all the rocks on the road, you weren't a true Montanan is what they said. And so we'll just say that after that first year there were some. And so I bought this stuff, and I, the car looks so nice. It's kind of like, Gary, sometimes I see your red car, the way you have that just shine. And I, that's, that's what it reminds remind me of my car. And a kid got mad at me at school one day. I was a principal there. They keyed the side of the car. And not on the passenger side where I wouldn't see it. It was keyed right by my door. Good thing we're in Montana. It's an easy place to dig a hole and stick that person in it. No, just kidding. Nothing like that ever happened. That was a joke. That was a joke. But I was so mad. And then I got convicted from God. Is this a museum relic, Brian? Or are you using this for ministry? Ministry. Then it's okay. And I've gotten better. Remember a while back, we had a field trip. And uh, we won't even talk about my truck. We'll leave that out. But the Pathfinder I got now, someone's getting out of another car. And one of the kids, and they opened that car door so fast and swung it open and smacked it right into the side of my car. Got a nice little red spot on it. Didn't even bother me. Just a car. Just a spot. That key spot did bother me for a while. But it comes down to it. What's your ho- is, is your home a museum? Look at all I have. Or is your home a place that you welcome God's people and you minister and use it for God's honor and for his glory? The Bible says that we're to use hospitality. That's what it says right here. When's the last time you opened up anything to God's people? When's the last time you loved God's people? The Bible tells us as we get closer to the end, we need to pray seriously and fervently. We need to love fervently. And number three, we need to give graciously. Look what it says in verse number 10. The Bible tells us, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the ability which God giveth. And as we look here and we think about this, give graciously. And sometimes I say the word give, and then some people, their brains tune out. He's going to talk about tithing and offerings. I think I could include that in here, but I'm not going to include that here. As we look at this, there are a few principles about gifts that God, the Spirit's given to us that we see. The first one is this. In letter A, we see some principles about gifts. When we look at these principles, the Bible's clear on a few things. And the gifts, the Holy Spirit of God gives us gifts. The first thing I want you to see is, number one, that everyone has at least one gift. Right? Do you see that right there? As every man hath received the gift. So every man has a gift, right? So you do say, Pastor, I have no spiritual gift. Yes, you do. You do. So at least one. So as every man, number two. And we'll look, look, at, look at 1 Corinthians 12, 7 before we go there. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. So everyone is given a gift. Number two. Everything we have is a gift from God, right? Everything we have 
is a gift from God. It says there in verse number 10, as every man hath received the gift. It's a gift. This, and as we see this here, it's not earned, but supernaturally given. And uh, did you know the word gift and grace are derived from the same Greek word? They are. Everything we have is a gift from God. Number three, every member of the family of God is a minister. Every saint is a servant called to serve one another. So look what the Bible says. As everyone, look at what it says in this verse. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another. Do you see that right there? This is the third time that Peter used the phrase one to another already in 1 Peter here. Spiritual gifts are not given to boost my self-esteem or for me to brag about. They are given to me so I can serve you, and you are given your gifts so you can serve God's people. That's what they're given for. Number four, we must be faithful in how we use the gifts we're given. The Bible says, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards. You see that phrase, stewards? That's the word steward there means as a manager. God has given you something. And you think about that. A steward was a manager who was given the owner's funds to administer. In a sense, you have been trusted with the gifts that the, God's given you through His Spirit. And you are to manage those wisely because they don't belong to you. They belong to Him, right? And in all reality, do you believe that everything you have is from God? If you believe that, would you raise your hand? You believe everything you have is from God. Then that means, you can put your hand down, that means we are to be good stewards or good managers of everything that God's given to us. That's why if you don't give to the Lord financially, you're not being a good steward. And that's all I'll say about that. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 4, 2, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Number five, when we use our gifts, we show the grace of God. That's what the Bible says. Look at what the rest of that verse says. It says, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The word manifold means multifaceted or different kinds. Just as God's grace is richly varied, so are the gifts he gives to his people. And as we look at this, and as we tie this all together today, and we think about these things, we really could break up gifts given into two areas. And I know I'm rushing through the end here a little bit, but you'll be okay. There are two categories of gifts, letter B. And in those two categories, you have, number one, speaking gifts. The gifts will include teaching preaching, evangelism, and so on. Look what the Bible says there in verse number 11. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. The word oracles refers to sayings, especially those spoken by God. And man, what a thought and what a humbling thought to me. And really something that keeps me awake at night sometimes. The sobering thought to think, that I get to stand up here and speak God's word to you. 
that should never be taken lightly by anyone who ever does. Because none of us are worthy to do it. And none of us have the right to do it. But God gifts us and allows us to do it. And that's why, if you look at my preaching, it's changed a lot over the years. There's a lot less Brian and a lot more Bible. And that's the way it should be. I like what Charles Spurgeon, he put it like this. Reckon that every sermon is a wasted sermon, which is not Christ's words. You have speaking gifts, and then number two, you have serving gifts. And it says there, if any man minister, let him do as of the ability which God giveth. And church, as we look at this, why should we pray soberly and fervently? Why should we love God's people fervently? Why should we use the gifts that we're get, or give graciously? Why should we do these things? We should do these things. Because look at the end of verse number 11. It says that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As we look at the end here, and as we see in light of the end, we need to pray more, we need to love better, and we need to use the gifts that God's given to us. Why? So that God gets all the glory and all the praise. You see, under application down there, number one, our practice must lead to praise. What we do should lead people to praise the Lord for what he's done. And number two, our work must culminate in worship. 